You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Solo Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99, the Comedy Channel. <clears throat> My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm at the back table of the Comedy Cellar. I'm here. This is a short, this is a small cast today. I'm here with, just with our producer, and she's also a comedian, Periel Ashenbrand. Hi. Hi, Periel. How are you? I'm well, thank you. <clears throat> I missed you last week. Oh, we missed you too. And uh, we're here uh, with um, the great Fred Kaplan. War Stories columnist for Slate. Also does jazz uh, reviews. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of six books, including his new one, The Bomb. Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Welcome my friend Fred Kaplan. Oh, it's good to be here, Noam, as always. And he did Sam Harris's podcast uh, a week or so ago. I did, yeah, yeah. And wow. Sa- and Sam Harris was so moved by this podcast that he uh, chose not to keep it behind his paywall and released it to the world for free. Because he thought you he do that, you do that all the time. We do no, that. I was going to say I'm going to do the opposite. I'm gonna, <laughs> now I'm going to keep it behind the paywall. Maybe that'll maybe that'll make it more intriguing. Who knows? He, he released it for free because he felt it was a public uh, a public good wow. for people to hear the um, the message of Fred's book. So let's let's get right into it. So all right. so there's a, there's a few things that um, are just like for storytelling reasons are just unbelievably uh, compelling and grab you which are the, the various close calls yeah. that we've had to nuclear war. And I want you to tell us about some of them. But before you tell us, were you aware of them all prior to doing the research for this book, or did, were any of them little known? Um, most of them I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't know how extensive things had become. Uh, do you mean things like the Berlin crisis or the Cuban Missile Crisis, or do you mean the ones where... On a radar screen, it looked like missiles were yeah, coming the, our way. The Those. ones where just by pure dumb luck, we didn't end, end yeah. civilization. Well, pure dumb luck. Uh, the one that's, that's most notable is that there was, uh, <clears throat> in 1983, there was a Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, who was on duty as the chief air defense officer that night. And he looks at the radar screen, and it looks like about a half a dozen... American ICBMs are coming their way. Now, if he'd, if he'd gone according to procedure, he should have called upstairs and told them. And the next layer up was a pretty trigger-happy bunch, having, you know, shot down Korean Airlines Flight 7 not that long. But he decided, no, this, this can't be real, and so I'm not going to tell the people upstairs. As a result of which, when they did find out about it, he, he, got, he got canned. He got canned. He got canned. And uh, only later, after the end of the Cold War and all this, was it revealed that this is the man who might have saved us from, from World War III. So this is 83. This is Reagan. This is Reagan. And this is a very, very tense year. I mean, a lot of things were going on in 1983. The KAL shoot-down, uh, the end of all negotiations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, 
But there were some other things, too. Uh, this is the year that that movie, The Day After, was on. Oh, which, I remember that. Which scared the daylights out of everybody. And and there was another... There, NATO was having a very, a very big war game to simulate... Um, the transition from a conventional war to a nuclear war. And it was extremely realistic. So realistic that the Soviets thought it was real and started taking steps to respond. And there was an American lieutenant general who was the chief of intelligence in Europe who thought this war game was a little too provocative. So tell, just, what, what, is it, what does a war game actually mean? Well, no, it, this, would, no this was troops in motion. I mean, it wasn't on a tabletop. This was... Dozens and dozens of airplanes carrying troops, radio silence. It was as and if it, it was going through the motions of what we would do if we really were preparing for a war. And they wouldn't warn the Soviet Union? Oh, well, they knew what was going on, and that's why they were responding. Now, this lieutenant general, he saw the Soviets making moves, and his guidebook said, if they start doing this, you do this to escalate things. But he decided... Now, I've never liked this war game. It's way too provocative. What the Russians are doing is a rational reaction to what we're doing. And so he did nothing to escalate the situation. So there's another situation where someone kind of in the medium level uh, might, have, might have prevented war from breaking out. But there are upper level things, too. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wait, but wasn't, there, yeah. wasn't there another one I read? I should have researched it, but I read it in the New York, in New York Magazine. Um, or in the, in the New Yorker about something with Carter and President oh, yeah. woke well, there up were, there and were they thought they were incoming. There were three incidents in a matter of three months where the radar screen showed Soviet missiles coming our way. It was discovered later that this was due to a software error. In other words, the software just started, it was like the movie War Games. It started playing the rehearsal for the, and uh, one of them, uh, Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, came this this far away from calling Carter on the phone. It was like the proverbial 3 o'clock in the morning. Then they realized it wasn't real. But um, no, th th these kinds of things. But imagine, uh, see, in those instances, nothing right then was going on. But let's say it had been in the middle of something like a Cuban Missile Crisis. All of a sudden, you see a false warning of, of missiles coming our way, and it's quite plausible that this is for real. And you might uh, respond accordingly. Fred, what happens, before I get the Cuban Missile Crisis, what happens psychologically, like from our point of view, I think we all agree, we would never order a first strike against Russia. We just, well, see, this is a good, I'm glad you brought that up. But, but they think we possibly might. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. The United States always has had, and still does have, an explicit, express, public and classified policy of reserving the right to go first with nuclear weapons. Right, but not unprovoked. No, no. But, you know, it's, for example, if the Russians invaded Western Europe and we can't respond with conventional, right. we would do this. Uh, but, but, you know, they don't know that. I mean, we, and in fact, there have been, and under Obama, there was a serious discussion. Should we declare a no first use policy? They decided against it, even, even though Obama thought and said privately, this is a crazy that an American president would actually do this. But in the 1950s and early 60s, the American policy, and it was the only policy, was that if the Soviets invaded Western Europe or, say, grabbed West Berlin, 
not with nuclear weapons, just using conventional weapons, it was U.S. policy to unleash the entire atomic arsenal against every target in the Soviet Union, the satellite nations of Eastern Europe, and even China, even if China had no participation in the war, and it was estimated that this would kill 285 million people. Jesus Christ. And that was, it wasn't just crazy people at the Strategic Air Command. The Joint Chiefs of Staff approved this. Uh, did a, did their doctrine said in the event of an armed conflict between the United States and Soviet Union, nuclear weapons will be used at the onset regardless of how it was initiated. And Eisenhower approved this as well. Well, it does, isn't there something, it says something to me about the... Um the very thin layer of morality, we, we pretend that there's this real moral uh, layer to war, but it, it will be discarded at the drop of a hat. I mean, and, and coming after World War II, when they were essentially, by the end, it was, it was open season on civilians. Right. It the was atom bomb was... Bomb, a, yeah, yeah. bomb everything. Bomb everything. So in that context, shortly after that, to have a doctrine which said, well, yeah, if we have to do what we have to do, if we take out China, that's well, just the way it but goes. See, but then what happened in the early 60s, the Soviets started developing their own arsenal. And so some people said, oh, wait a minute, this is kind of crazy. If they invade West Germany and we respond by bombing them, they're going to respond by bombing us. And so then some people started coming up with ideas for what they called limited nuclear options. The idea, we'll just throw out a few... Maybe they won't respond, or maybe if they will, it will be... And, and the thing is, this all sounds very bloodthirsty and nutty now, but in fact, this was a more, quote-unquote, humane alternative to the bomb everything. The interesting thing that I just found out with this book's research is that, you know, like Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, he, he came up with a half a dozen different limited options, and he put this in guidance and sent it to the Strategic Air Command. What I found out with the research with this book is... Strategic Air Command just ignored it. Really, all until the very end of the Cold War, if the President of the United States had gotten into a situation where he thought nuclear weapons should be used and gave the orders to sack, what would really happen would be an all-out nuclear attack, even if he wanted to keep it limited. The way that they had the command control and the caveats, that, that was it. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an insane thing, but that's... That's what we were on the brink of for, you know, 40 years. How many megatons of bombs can be exploded before basically everything is uninhabitable? Well, see, if, Do we know that? one thing that we only recently discovered with nuclear winter, which has never been taken into account in the calculations of nuclear effects, uh, you know, all the smoke stuff that's kicked up by nuclear explosions, I've seen calculations recently that as few as 80 nuclear bombs would, would set off the kind of effects like, you know, the comet that killed the dinosaurs. And 80 nuclear bombs, I mean, that's kind of the, the size of the nuclear option we have against North Korea. It's been the scheme of things that is a very small nuclear... We, we have way, 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 way fewer nuclear weapons than we used to, but we still have a couple thousand. Does it matter that we have fewer weapons? Um, is, is anything really safer because we have fewer weapons? It depends where they are and what they're doing. I mean, we used to have a lot of weapons in Western Europe, and we don't have, we have like 100 now, and 50 of those are in Turkey, and I think some people are wishing that we'd gotten rid of those. Uh, but it depends how, if, if something happens by accident, uh, yeah, it probably does, it does, it, it is important how, how many or how few we have. 
if you're trying to give an impression of whether nuclear weapons are actually usable things, yeah, it, 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 does it has an effect. Now, what is, in your estimation, the counterfactual? It, it, is, it, is it a coincidence that it seems to, to me that far fewer people have been dying since the invention of the atom bomb? Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I do think, and even someone like Daniel Ellsberg, who's sort of a nuclear abolitionist, would agree that there are a few wars that probably would have happened that didn't because of nuclear weapons, because deterrence. Like, you can think maybe a couple of major wars between India, India, Pakistan. India and Pakistan, yeah, for yeah. example. But, you know, that can only go on for, for so long. I, I think one thing that I discovered in this book, and this is kind of a running theme through the book, is that almost all of our presidents in the atomic age have faced crises in which the use of nuclear weapons has been seriously contemplated and the documentation shows that all of these presidents up until now have, have, dug, have dug very, immersed themselves very deeply into the logic, the strategy, the scenarios, the consequences, often guided by briefers who were discussing this in very calm and in some cases advocate terms. And in each case they decided no, this is catastrophic, I've got to get myself out of this rabbit hole and resolve this crisis peacefully through some diplomatic means. Well, I mean... The, the, but, but wait, so... Go, sorry. But we don't know that about Trump. We don't know that he digs deeply into anything, right? <laughs> and so I think there are three things. I think if you had gone back to 1947 and asked somebody, uh, what do you think the chances are that somebody will use a nuclear bomb by the year 2020? I think almost everybody would say, oh, close to 100%. The fact that we haven't, I think, is due to three things. One... You know, deterrence, it works to some degree. Two, we've had these shrewd leaders who, when facing the abyss, have decided that it's not worth going there. And three, you know, blind luck. You know, the fact that when Kennedy was contemplating the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and what to do and going against every single one of his advisors who wanted to start bombing the missiles in Cuba and he decided not to, what if there had been a false warning of an actual Russian attack? He would have felt very... Yeah. So you, what you happens if we have a mix you of a slow-witted leader and a bad bit of luck? You told some story about some little-known tapes of Kennedy. Well, there, here's the... You know, I don't understand historians. These tapes have been out there for a couple of decades now. There is this myth still there. There was the myth that was put out at the time for, for political reasons that we went eyeball to eyeball with the Russians and they blinked. Or, you know, Khrushchev came up with this proposal on Friday to, uh, I'll take out my missiles if you promise to not to invade Cuba. And then on Saturday he did say, well, I'll take them out if you take out your missiles in Turkey. And the myth is Kennedy took the Friday deal and ignored the Saturday deal. When in fact, no, he took the Saturday deal. He said at the meeting, and it's on tape, he said, well, this seems like a pretty fair trade. And everybody around the table, not just the military, but Bobby Kennedy, Robert McNamara, all these guys, they feverishly opposed it. And he took it while only telling about a half a dozen of them. And here's the thing, Noam. If anybody else around that table had been president, there would have been war because we've learned much later that some of those Russian missiles had nuclear warheads on them. Right. We also learned pretty recently that the Russians had secretly deployed 42,000 troops on the island of Cuba, some armed with tactical nukes to ward off an American invasion. So if we'd gone, the plan was, 
air attacks on the missiles, followed by an invasion. If Kennedy had said, yeah, you're right, this is a bad proposal, let's go ahead with the plan, there, there would have been World War III. There is, there is so often to me a gap in the sobriety or the, the soberness of the person who actually has to make a decision yes. to the people around him barking out suggestions and orders, whatever it is. And I think that's... So far. Yeah, so far. I, and I think that's part of the reason so many of these people, when they were actually presented with these scenarios, backed off. That's right, that's and right. so I only say that to mean that maybe if those people around Kennedy had actually been president, they might have actually come to the same conclusion as Kennedy. But you don't know. You don't know. Well, they were... I mean, you listen to the tape. They're like McGeorge Bundy, the paragon of rationality, is practically in tears arguing against this deal that Khrushchev has put okay, forth. Okay, so, so what's their psychology? I mean... The well, the psych oh, NATO will be wrecked, the Turks will be undermined, our credibility will be shot. And even afterwards, the politics were such that Kennedy lied. He told everybody, he told six people what he was doing, one of whom was not Lyndon Johnson, by the way, and he said, okay, but you are never to tell anybody, ever. And he told the Russians, we're taking this deal, but if you reveal it, it's off. Because he would be seen as appeasement. You know, caving in to the Russians. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a crazy time. But the logic, the psychology of mutual assured destruction mm -hmm. is valid, such that you wouldn't think anybody would actually give the order if they knew that well, they're going to, that they're, but, it's but, suicide. But what if there's a, a, a perception, true or not, that the other side is about to attack us? then the temptation is we have to attack them before they attack us. The worrisome thing about India-Pakistan, like U.S.-Russia, there's a half-hour warning time. India-Pakistan, it's like three minutes. What if there's a false warning there? The, the, the pressure for preemption could be enormous. But couldn't you give an order to the submarines saying, listen, we have, we have missiles coming in, we're not sure, but if they turn out to be real, well, they're down we may not be here, but we want you to shoot. Well, but they're down in the submarine. They don't know what the hell's going on. We can't up. communicate with submarines? Yeah, you can, but, but you give an order, and that's kind of it. What I'm saying is that, that, that if I would but think... But you're right in the sense that, you know, some people say, let's get rid of land-based missiles. That's the lure. Let's do a jujitsu move, deprive them of their targets, that's and just keep in book. submarines. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what I'm saying is that if I, if I thought there was a chance that this... Well, the question would, what's the point of even responding? But, but presuming well, you're that, going to respond. That's an issue, too. Um, but presuming you just would, just because you're not going to let them get well, away with well, it. <laughs> well, see, here's where deterrence becomes, you have to convince them, and maybe yeah. therefore yourself, that you would. Otherwise, it all falls apart. So you give the standing order, say, well, this could be a false alarm, but if it's not, yeah, but you are hereby authorized to, to retaliate. No, you don't want to do that. You mean give them pre-delegated authority? Like, if you don't hear from me in 20 minutes, launch? Yeah. Well, <laughs> what if it, the communication it, just it, went down? But that seems to be safer than just launching. In other words, you have, the, you have two options. Yeah. I, we have five minutes to decide. I can either launch now and find that it was actually a glitch, it was a bug. I say, you know what, I'm just going to wait to see if they hit. Well, and, if they, and if they vaporize Washington, I'm already going to give I would orders. Say that until very recently, the standing assumption at yeah. Strategic Air Command was that we would launch on warning. The idea that we would ride out an attack, uh, the option for riding no out, the option for riding out an attack wasn't even worked into the war plan until about 1990, <coughs> and it, even then it was just one option out of, out of several. But but I think my logic is correct that it's the the yeah, really. if you can still respond, you you should wait. But see, the, then they'd say, Mr. President, uh, we have no idea whether the communications will still be in motion. This may be our our only chance to respond. 
No, you don't need the communications. You say... No, you need to order it. If you, or, you say, look, we, we see 10 ICBMs coming in. We're not sure they're real. If they hit and you can and you don't hear from us and you and you can verify that they hit you are hereby ordered to this is this is your order this is your right, well, you know, I'll tell you something yeah. more frightening the russians put when when we put in what was called the persian 2 missile which was in europe but was very accurate it could hit the russians took that as a decapitation weapon to knock out the russian leadership they therefore created something called the dead hand which was like the doomsday machine in doctor strange love if, a, the sens- if sensors detected a nuclear explosion on Russian soil, a certain number of missiles would be launched automatically. And I am told that this system is still in place. Oh, my God. Dr. Strangelove is a documentary. He really is. All right, and what about, what's this hypersonic missile? That, uh, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's yeah, just, it really just bluffing. It's cr- well, I don't think it exists. And if it does exist, all, all ICBMs are hypersonic. And if the idea is that they'll evade our missile defenses, our missile defenses suck anyway, so it doesn't matter. And missile defenses are destabilizing. Well, it can be, or you know, it depends. But uh, it, it, it's such a, we spend $10 billion a year on this stuff, and it, the tests are... are we're, no we're never getting rid of these. That is, is that one of the conclusions? I think, you know, short of some transformation in world politics that can hardly be imagined, I don't think... So. I mean, look, look at Kim Jong-un. If, I, if you or I were the leader of North Korea, and we had the same goals as Kim Jong-un, you know, perpetuation of the regimes and so forth, the last thing we would want to do is to get rid of nuclear weapons. Of course. This is what saves us. This is our only point of leverage. And nobody's going to get rid of all of their nuclear... Unless, again, unless, you know, aliens come from outer space or something, or there is a, a nuclear war, a small one, and people say, oh, Jesus... We've got to do something about this. Okay. No, I, I just don't see so, it. So I have, I have two more points I want to cover that I want to bring Eleanor. So with everything that you've learned and all the deep thinking you've done about this, where are you on what the effects would be if Iran actually went nuclear? Is that something we can tolerate or something we cannot tolerate? Well, I mean, see, that is an ultimate political question. Every president, including Obama, including Clinton, uh, they all said, we will not tolerate an, an Iran that has gone nuclear. Now, what Obama did, you know, he screwed up their program with, with the cyber offensive program. And that was uh, one way to do it. Yeah, the Stuxnet. I mean, it is still highly classified that we had anything to do with that. I mean, I, I, you know, I did a book on cyber war, talked with a lot of people about very classified things. I would mention Stuxnet and zip, <laughs> nothing. Uh, you know... I don't know. I mean, it's a good. Uh, my view is that, you know, I think they could be deterred. Israel has 200 atomic bombs, you which see, is also secret. And, and you and I had this conversation a while ago. When I saw Chernobyl, yeah. the documentary, I was very taken with the utter incompetence of dictatorships. Well, and look then, what China's doing with yeah, the coronavirus. And I was just going to say, and then you see this with China, and I say, well, and you hear all these close calls of America maybe sending off a bomb in Russia era. as well. So how can what are, I mean? What kind of safeguards no, are there going to be right. in Iran? I don't know. None. Well, and there might be some. There, there. You know, but it's funny. You know, when Pakistan started going nuclear, we when we were allies, we provided them with some locks on their weapons. But they did not let us do the last step because they assumed correctly that we would install something that would allow us to lock it. And they didn't let us in that, that far. But, um, no, you're right. I mean, it's, um, 
this is this is a much more volatile thing than than people like to think about. Yeah, I think we've gotten and we've had this conversation too. I, when I think that after World War II, our reaction to the Cuban Missile Crisis was no way, absolutely not. We're not allowing them to have uh, missiles in Cuba. And yep. that, to me, is no different than Iran having an atom bomb. But as we've gotten away from that time in history, we're, we're contemplating, yeah. well, maybe we'd be okay, maybe we can deter it. But I think the, I think the reaction of the, of the people in the 60s was more the correct one, which is we well, cannot take that risk. Cuba was 90 miles from Doesn't Florida. Matter. Iran, well, but what about the 200 weapons that Israel has from their point of view? Well, but we, we, we had deterrence against Cuba, too. I mean, the time is, you've proven to me, the time really doesn't matter that much. The point is that a, a tin-pot third-world regime pointing missiles at us... It's, it's, a, it's, it's a scary thing. ...used to be unacceptable, and now we're kind of... It's well, they kind were of becoming Soviet normalized. missiles. It wasn't controlled by Cuba. So even... even um, that would have been even more reason to not overreact to it. But, you know, a third-world is even worse. Well, also, you know. one-minute warning time. And yeah. No, well, I, there's a whole other story of that, but we need to get to Eleanor no, well, 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 to talk about... Final question, because I think this, this will lead us Trump. Yeah. Now, do you think he's insane? Like, would he, would he want to vaporize himself and his family? Well, look... Or do you think Here's he just the bluffs thing. He, he, One thing we've learned recently is that he's not keen to get into a war, but he might be susceptible to being dragged into one. He has a rather cavalier attitude toward nuclear weapons. He doesn't like people to, um, who embarrass him or who betray him. I'm wondering, what if he suddenly realizes that Kim Jong-un has been taking him for a ride with his beautiful letters and his symmetry, and, and he, all of a sudden Kim crosses the line, launches an ICBM test, or starts exploding nuclear devices again. Will, will Trump get so pissed off that he makes a threat and they make a threat? And it, I mean, there. Yes, he'll I, make the threat. But but see, in, in 2017, we came much closer. I have a, a section on this in the book. He wasn't just talking out of his hat. We came very close to triggering something during the fire and fury age. A nuclear first strike? Well, not nuclear, but it, it was known by the military. It could very easily have escalated to that. Yeah, I, th- I read part of this. That, Conventional that he, he, he said that we're, He actually said we're going to get rid of them, or if China doesn't take care of it, we're going to We're going to do it. No, but there yeah. were things behind the scenes, things we were doing and planning and rehearsing. It got, it got, it got, it got uh, very hairy. Because my worry is that, and I, and I don't discount any of the risks of Trump, although I just kind of think he's, if he has mental illness and he's insane, then he could order it, but I think he's, sane enough to understand the game theory that you don't want to make a move to dis- to, to destroy yourself. But my but the opposite I worry about is how will a President Sanders be misinterpreted by our enemies throughout the world? If I'm if I'm the head of Iran, do I say to myself, this is my window of opportunity. I'm never gonna get a better shot to get an atom bomb than right now with President Sanders, because we know he won't do a goddamn thing about it. Let's go. And are there three other, three or four other bad actors around the world who might come to the same conclusion with the President Sanders? Um, and even if they're wrong, and even if Sanders does stand up, it's too late. He might react. He might overreact. Yeah, well, to that I'm not. I'm not a weakling. Well, I mean, this is what happened. Yeah. Saddam Hussein uh, miscalculated yes. about Bush, right? But it doesn't matter. We still ended up with the and war. Khrushchev miscalculated about yeah. Kennedy. Yeah. And, so uh, Sanders yeah. might actually stick up for us. <laughs> but I worry about the 
I think you would discuss the madman theory. We have a madman, mad and, yes. and, and people are cautious. Like, I, I'm pretty sure Iran's not going to do anything too provocative now until after November because they'd much rather do provocative things if Sanders were president because they don't know what Trump's capable of. And they assume Sanders not capable of much. Now, they could be all wrong. I don't, you know, the internal politics of Iran are, you know, this, in the recent parliamentary election, the hardliners quadrupled their, the number of seats that they hold. And that's because of Trump. Yeah, yeah. I believe that. Okay. Well, this is, you know, it's, it's scary as hell. I mean, to but think... But I, I should note, the New York Times, in their review, called the book surprisingly entertaining. Oh, he got a, he got a rave review from the New York Times. I mean, it's not just a, it's not something to, just to make your brow furrowed. Is all I'm saying. Well, and, and Fred is funny. I know him, and he's also a, a tremendous storyteller. The only thing that you don't get in the book is that Fred also does very good voices of Kennedy <laughs> and stuff. He really does. And right? I didn't I didn't do the audio book. <laughs> you didn't. You should have done the audio uh, book. It doesn't work that way. Well, um, you would have been, you may, could, you maybe have we'll take voice. some video of that for social media. <laughs> Fred doing voices. So, but where's the doomsday clock these days? That's a publicity scheme. It it's like two minutes till. It's, it's crazy. You know, it's Cuban Missile Crisis. It was seven minutes till midnight. I, I don't think it should be any less than that. But, what, last question. What, what in the end, which is more likely, an accidental war or a? a it's way more accidental, right? Kind no. of a mixture of threat, counter threat, accident. I think is probably the way it would go. Right. We're joined by a friend of Fred's, Eleanor Randolph. <laughs> Uh, now I just heard her age secondhand through this. I can't. I'm not gonna you say don't that. Want to say that. I'm not gonna say that. But but I can't believe that's actually correct. Yes, that's right. I'm much younger than Fred. That, that's that's. And even I'm much. Even I'm a lot older than I look. All right. So Eleanor Randolph is a veteran journalist and author of the Many Lies of Michael Bloomberg. She has covered national politics and media for Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and was a member of the New York Times editorial board. Wow. From 1998 <laughs> to 2016, with Sarah Zhang hired to replace you, and uh, no, that was a little bit later. Right. Um, she has written for Vogue, Esquire, and New Republic. Let's test your mic. One, two, three. Is that better? That's good. yeah, that's perfect. Oh, good. So, uh, are you a Bloomberg supporter? Um, well, I'm a journalist, so um, the book is it. It tells his flaws. A lot of the stuff that you've been hearing about is in the book. Uh, but it also explains a lot of them. Uh, you know, I just want to say that um, I am really worried about this election. But now that I've heard Fred, I've decided there's nothing we can do anyway. <laughs> Fred has that effect on people. I know. The end of the world is nigh. And, of course, it, he's talking about nuclear winter. And Michael Bloomberg is talking about uh, climate change and the globe heating up. So... So we've got some alternative theories all, about the, the future. Maybe they'll cancel each other out. Yeah. That's are there any real, like, what are the issues with Bloomberg that I'm hearing? That he told some blue jokes 30 years ago in an yeah. office? Like, who cares? I know. Well, Do I, people really care about that? Well, I don't. Yeah, I talk, talk closer. Yeah. I wouldn't think so. I really, I mean, look, a lot of those jokes came from Wall Street. And he, he um, it, it, you know, when a book came out with all these really stupid jokes that he told, he said they were Catskill jokes, and actually, I went through the book, and that's—I'm not sure he could tell some of those jokes in the Catskills, but most of them were like—they were like kid jokes. I heard him tell a joke. It wasn't racist. It wasn't sexist. It was just dumb. It was about an outhouse, you know, that kind of that kind of humor. 
I just don't understand that. I, I just I just wonder whether anybody really has their vote affected by the revelation that somebody told a kind of dirty joke 30 years ago. It just seems like we have coronavirus coming now. Right. And I look at de Blasio and I say, God, I wish... I'd feel a lot better if Bloomberg were mayor right That's now. That's right. He's and, much more competent. Yeah, I mean, I, he would be on top of that. That's you know? right. And if, and if he couldn't be, I don't know anybody who could. So what do I care about his jokes? That, that, that's crazy. Well, I think the criticism was that he, he, his, that world that they created, the Wall Street world, uh, demeaned women. And, and it certainly did. It you did. Know. Uh, and and so, does still continues to this day, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I, but, uh, but Bloomberg has, has, has moved on and has changed. And as, as the world gets, uh, you know, uh, comes up to his doorstep, he, he begins to change. And the editor, we both had the same editor, uh, Alice Mayhew, who died a few weeks ago. And okay. the thing she said about my book was that um, Michael Bloomberg improved with age, and I think that's really right. He got he, he's gotten better. He's you know most of the flaws that we hear about are things that have happened a long time ago. Although he does have a, uh, I mean the journalists love this. He he so we called it the blurt factor, and he would just say things that were just dumb you know and and they would come out and uh and and they would be in the new york post and the daily news and they would be a big deal at least for a week or so so a lot of that stuff's coming back i mean i i i was not i always had mixed feelings about bloomberg because of things like i, I thought he was toned up to the middle class raising parking fines very high things like that that i that if i were mayor i'd say i wouldn't have done that but it never occurred to me that we weren't very fortunate to have one of the most competent mayors, I think, in history for 12 years in New York City. Am I, is, that a, is that wrong? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you, um, the, he did things that were wrong, and we've heard a lot about those now that he's been running. And, for some, you know, we haven't really heard about the things he did right. I mean, he came in after 9-11. The city was mourning. And we were worried about a recession. And he sort of brought the city through that recession. Then he brought the city through another recession, 2008, 2009. And, you know, he got smoking out of bars. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but... Uh, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll tell you that because it's interesting. Go ahead. Anyway, he got smoking. You know, smokers now are huddled on the sidewalk outside. And um, trans fat was removed from restaurants he did a lot of public health um you know he 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 lost one fight that we always hear about that was the soda the big gulp uh fight but he often says that even though they lost that in the courts they won it because people don't really want a bucket of cola anymore you know it it seemed so uh it seemed just too small for a mayor to be Involved with, I didn't mind. I actually supported the trans fat thing because I saw the trans fat as this kind of like evil that, that there was no benefit to it, and and uh, there was no way, real way to get rid of it. Consumers were not going to um, be alert enough to it to start demanding to know whether there was trans fats in restaurants, and I didn't I didn't see any downside. I was I'm not a smoker. I was against the smoking. Well, I'm, I'm going to get it right. I think it it came from Giuliani first. 
Well, there were there was a lot of talk about it, but nobody got anything done. Okay, but the, so the first one was very unfair because it allowed the smaller restaurants to have smoking and the bigger ones couldn't. And that, and that was harmful to us. Mm -hmm. As soon as they made it across the board, mm -hmm. uh, I was much happier with it. But I didn't know how it would pan out. But he was 100% right. I mean, it had no effect on business whatsoever, and nobody wants to go back. I mean, this nobody. was, this was right. a, an example of a nanny state move by a government, <laughs> which really was 100% the right thing to do. Well, he's been big on public health uh, for a very long time, and he's, uh, he's this uh, doctor, this public health doctor down at um, Johns Hopkins convinced him that if, if you go to the doctor and the doctor saves your life, you're really happy. You think, oh, my God, the doctor saved my life, and you might give money to the, to the doctor. But if, if, if the public health agencies keep you from getting typhoid, you never know, That's you right. know. And so he's put a lot of money behind that kind of public health um, uh, this, what, what you're describing is a phenomenon like if Clinton had uh, gone into Afghanistan and, gone, and gotten rid of bin Laden, uh, he could have never proved that he avoided a, a horrible catastrophe of 9-11. You can never, if, if, you, if you prevent something, you can't ever prove you prevented anything, <laughs> that's and right. it's very hard for people to give you the credit. That's right. Uh, so that's that's a classic. I mean, he thing. did. Uh, Bloomberg did a lot of other things as mayor. I mean, he, the one of the things that uh, people don't talk about very much is, I mean, we talk about stop and frisk, and that was really. Can, can we talk about stop and frisk for a second? Sure. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt your point. No, go All right. Well, let me do my point, yeah. and then yeah. we'll. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, one of the things he did in 2008, after Lehman Brothers um, collapsed, he got um, the s several people in his administration to figure out, to go out to the community and find out how to make New York less dependent on Wall Street. And because if you watched the way the budgets worked, if Wall Street gave out big bonuses, the city and the state did well. If they didn't, you know, the city uh, suffered. So he got these people to decide that what New York City needed was a tech graduate school. And everybody told him that's just not going to happen. You're not going to get that done. But he did. He got it done. And it's now on Roosevelt Island. And it's it's becoming the city's... the city's in here, too. That's right. The city's becoming a big tech center now. Um... You know, and 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 that will help if you if we're not so dependent on well, Wall Street. This is this brings up the insanity of what I would call the left, which is that of course they don't want New York to be dependent on Wall Street, and yet they want to make sure that Amazon doesn't have a, a strong foothold in Queens, and you know, and usher in that whole new economy. You know. Well, it. So what do they want? How do they want New York City to survive? Well, it looked to me as though. The politicians did not negotiate that Amazon deal very well. I mean, first of all, everybody gets those kind of write-offs, and they were talking about big bucks coming to Queens. And so uh, suddenly, you know, the left decides that, that, I mean, Amazon has employees that don't do so well, but that is the kind of thing that a really good mayor and 
a governor if they could speak to each other, which they don't do, as you know. No. Uh, they could have negotiated a pretty good deal with with Bezos and and. But and e- I would say, even the worst deal was better <laughs> than no deal when it comes to. I mean, if the future, I said it's not, the future is going to happen somewhere. If it doesn't happen in New York, it'll happily happen in in Newark. Mm-hmm. It was just crazy. There is, you know, to to chase that out of an underdeveloped part of New York City. But stop and frisk. Okay. So I actually, I'm pretty right wing about most things, but I was always against stop and frisk. I, I mean, maybe not always, but as soon as that course, that court case came out and it, it kind of revealed all the statistics of the number of stops, how they had increased it, and how many fewer people are actually being arrested after tripling or quadruple. I said, this is, this is crazy. And I, and I knew a lot of people, because I was a musician, and I, and I knew a lot of friends and people who were having horrible experiences being pulled over by the cops and everything. But what, it, what came out recently really outraged me, which was that he says, yeah, we're arresting these kids for marijuana, these black kids for marijuana, and that's just the way it's going to be. So essentially that like 10 times as many black kids per capita are getting arrested for marijuana than white kids and getting in trouble with the law and having criminal records and, and being enraged and traumatized and any any interaction with the police when they control you and tell you what to do and maybe manhandle you a little bit that can traumatize you for life and he said well that's just the way it goes for a, for a an infraction that nobody actually cares about he didn't mm-hmm. really care mm-hmm. and I thought of a, a question <laughs> um, I compared it in my mind to these kids in cages at the border as a moral Comparison. So the kids in cages, so that's terrible also. But I understand the predicament. You have a border, you're trying to control the border, families come over with their kids, you don't know, you can't just let them in, the, the courts have told you you can't incarcerate the families together, so you, I, so there's no clear answer. Like I can say no, kids in cages is no good, but I can't really tell them how to handle that problem. Nobody has a good answer to that. So I, so I have a certain respect for that predicament. Uh, with an immoral outcome, these kids in cages, as opposed to the Bloomberg situation, which is also absolutely immoral, absolutely traumatizing, and totally unnecessary. And in a certain way, I could, I could make the argument that what Bloomberg did is even worse and less morally defensible than, than the predicament of putting kids in cages, which even Obama at times felt he had to do. Any, any thoughts on that? Is that ridiculous? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? Yes, I understand. Well, you know, stop and frisk is... The really downside of the of the Bloomberg uh, mayoralty, and um, I tried in my book. I tried to go back and find out why he did it because it was so wrong. I mean, I read the court case, and the way the police abused kids was just unconscionable. I mean, kids just walking home from school with a coke bottle in their pants, and you know, and kids soon becoming terrified of the police and that terror made the police decide that they they were suspicious i mean it was really really awful now stop question and frisk has been around for a very long time it was part of a court case in in the late 60s terry versus ohio they were called terry stops but what happened with the bloomberg administration was they just sent the police out and said stop anybody who looks like they might have any kind of weapon and they just stopped everybody and it took Bloomberg 
did not, I don't believe that Bloomberg really realized on a gut level how bad it was until he saw that the number of stop and frisks went down and the crime rate did not go up because he thought that the crime rate was going to go up and that was what they kept saying when you when you pull back on stop and frisk the crime rate's going to go up it did not happen well, it, it hasn't happened I, I i suspect it will go up at some point because of it and but i don't know that that's well the police that's the end of the consideration the police still use that tactic it's not gone they didn't they didn't it didn't disappear um, it's, I mean, he, it's just that you have a constitutional way to do it, and you have to follow these specific rules so to we've been stop. So I'm enjoying my Will Sylvain, so I'm, I'm going to ask Will's opinion in a second, but I just wanted to say that I, um, I had always thought that Bloomberg made the argument that, well, actually, the, the lives being saved here are black and minority lives overwhelmingly, and that was true. And I think in his mind that made it, like, I'm saving lives, so everything else is secondary. And I understand that logic. But what was always interesting to me is that if you're, doing a, if you're having a policy which is saving thousands or hundreds of years of black lives, and the black people whose lives are being saved find it intolerable, you ought to stop and say, wait a second, you know, maybe there's something here I don't understand. I, you're, like, they don't appreciate this. They're not, they would rather some higher level of crime as a trade-off to leaving their lives uh, with, with, with well, you know, he just comfort. believed the police commissioner, yeah. and Ray Kelly was the police commissioner, and anything the police commissioner wanted, he just said he supported him on it, and it, 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 it was wrong. And finally, you got him to say it was wrong. Well, Hello, Will's a, I Hello, should say Will is a black Randolph. man. If you, you might not recognize it from his voice. Hello, Mrs. Randolph, Mr. Hello, Kaplan, <laughs> boys and girls. <laughs> Have also, you been stopped and frisked? Let's not forget that Bloomberg said that all the real crimes happen in the black neighborhoods. Uh, yeah, you guys don't live in the black neighborhoods, obviously. Um, but you, you know, he, when he, he gave some statistics of the violent crimes being in, in minority neighborhoods, but, but the statistics are accurate. They're, they're, I they're, don't know about that. Well, you, you know, I haven't heard about it, statistics. I haven't heard of statistics challenge. It's usually, it's not like a bunch of different people doing studies. It's, it's usually one person you take taking states from one person and we don't know if this this group this study covered other neighborhoods they just I don't look listen not. well you don't the, think there's the a lot of is, you don't think a lot of uh, white people mugging each other on the Upper East Side I don't right? know <laughs> well, I don't know they're not they're doing it with pens and paper with white people hey sign here on the dotted line this is the thing and, and, I, and I've had this argument or this kind of awkward discussion before but I and I and I always find this predicament we spend so much time as a nation properly focusing on the plight of the African-American minority communities because of their uh, third-rate way that they're treated and, and, and live. Well, hold on. And yet, when, then you wanna, when you want to focus on crime in that community, there's this kind of pride which, which, which comes along. Say, well, we, we don't have... Why but no say, one's why talking say, about... Well, I'm the, well, say, why, do we have, why are you saying we have more crime than other people? I say, well, okay, well, if you don't have more crime than other neighborhoods, then why should you get special attention? Uh, okay, but no one's talking about the seed that caused that. No, that's, the, that's hold a whole on, other matter. Hold on, hold up, Hammer. Let me finish. Okay. No <laughs> one's talking about the, the seed that caused that. The, why is there more crime if you say are in black neighborhoods? That's a whole other question. Hold up, hold up. That's a whole other question. Hold up, let, me, let me finish, No, <laughs> Hold up. 
See, that's what I'm saying. Black people, you didn't talk, none of the white people. But you're changing the subject. <laughs> I'm not changing the subject. So no one's talking about, look, look, for crying out loud, did you guys hear, it took 120 years for them to make lynching a crime. Right. 120 years later. And four people it's, voted. They, they don't those, care. Yeah. They, they, of course, they don't now? care about. Four the, people well, voted I agree with it's you. Four, it's three Republicans and one independent. Oof. No. Okay. Well, and I bet you there were some Democrats in there, but they Democrats favor themselves. You know, they 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 be supposed to be the the people for the people of color, but they can't publicly say I'm against. Uh, well, yes. but we were talking about Bloomberg and his remarks about Carl. yeah, but, but, but hey, hold on, they have they have Comstat. Is that what Comstat? Yes, yeah. that's right. And they have but, some sort of thing there, and they get and they see the dots like like that was under no, Giuliani Bratton. But it no, continued, yeah. right? No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And every and wait, police department wait, wait, in the wait, country that really. started under Dinkins and Hodge. In, in the mic, in the mic. They, Dinkins and Koch used a very similar system. Yeah. No, but whatever. I'm saying, I'm saying, and he's looking at these stats, and as a mayor, he doesn't look at those. He, does, he says, look at all the crimes committed in that okay. zone. I and know. doesn't say, well, we need to know the root causes why. But no, you what, have to. We have a police force, and the police force job is to prevent those crimes. Let me, you have to let me finish my full thing. You're, you're trying, Bloomberg is trying to fix the problem on the surface level, not yes. going deep into why are these people doing this or what 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 caused this what so can, what can he you, do about that you go and you change the laws you change the way people treat them what the law? whole hold up hammer let me what let law me, you said change the laws what law whatever law i'm or implement laws like what the whole lynching that why is that lynching law took took, took so long what else would someone be lynching but there wasn't lynching in new york city you know are you, are, are you <laughs> sure about that uh, not now under Bloomberg. Look, <laughs> not now. Well, not I, under I'm Bloomberg. On, I'm on your, <laughs> si I'm on your side about this, but I think that one of the lessons of the last... Way back then, yeah. One of the lessons of the last 50, 70 years has to have been that nothing seems to work. I mean, it, it's, 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 a very, it's a very difficult problem that nobody's quite sure what to do. You've had cities like Baltimore with all black government passing whatever laws they thought would work. And, but it's um, still America as a whole, the way they look. But the, the, mayor, the, the, but the mayor still view, has to prevent, a police force still has to their attack whole crime. view on black people, the entire view on black people, which I don't care, you could have, look, you guys know about Black Wall Street, that in, in Oklahoma, you know, you know about Black Wall Street, why, why it got shut down? Oh, yes, yes. In, um, in uh, Kansas or someplace? Oklahoma? Oklahoma, Oklahoma yeah. Oklahoma, right. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> you, you do know you know the story behind well, that. Well, it wasn't a race riot. People came in and just murdered people. Murdered? Yeah, and yeah. you know why? Because they said some they black were... man raped a raped a white woman, and they just well, went was... and murdered all. But it had to do with taking over financial institutions. Yeah, but the, the, the point, like my point, that I'm trying yeah. to say is, they the America's view on black people. This is how they see us. When, okay. but, but when was when was that? 1920s. That was the 20s. Yeah. Right, we're, we're way off. We're way I'm sorry I went way off topic, so Will, would you? but you had to go deep in the <laughs> in the seed of what causes this. But, but here's this. the thing: I I was in New you York. You can't just cover it on the surface level. I was sorry, a New York sir. City newspaper reporter. Frank when, Kaplan's talking. Go ahead. <laughs> when when crime started going down, and I you know what year were, is this? You know, 92, 93. You know, and uh, everybody I talked with, all the sociologists and this sort of thing, they said, "Oh, listen." This is bullshit. Crime, police practices can have no impact on the reduction in crime. And Giuliani and Bratton were saying it's because of what we were doing. Not stop and frisk, it was the Comstat and stuff like that. And so many people told me this is impossible. And yet, 
you know, yes, ultimately you need to get to the root causes, but of what you're trying to do, you know, there were 2,500 murders in New York City in 1989, 88, something like that. Now there are 300, not even 300. Stunning. And we haven't addressed the real root causes of all this shit, but we were able to reduce the level of crime by a staggering percentage. Can I give you guys a little example? So, um, in my neighbor, in the, uh, uh, just a neighborhood where they, they start putting more police in the streets. I'm not, I'm not one of these people that's, uh, you know, the, the police ain't nothing or after police. I believe in p good policing. Mm -hmm. You put good police in the neighborhoods. The thing is, all these guys who sell drugs or whatever, it's like they just don't disappear. This has been their life. You know, they, they have no way, other way of life, whether they have a criminal record or, or because what are they going to do? Go get, go get a 9 to 5? It's not that easy to turn these people's lives that easily around. And they're like, well, the cops are here. I can't sell drugs. I'm going to go get a job, a 9 to 5. And it's, it's like they're going to go somewhere else. It's like it's gonna, it doesn't, doesn't happen like that overnight. But it's like, well, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, don't, mean to, I don't mean to cut you off. Finish, but you, you always cut me off. So, <laughs> so, but I, that's why. That, that's why, you know, things things turn like uh, you know the Titanic trying to avoid it. They turn very, very slowly, and you would not expect crime to uh, disappear immediately. And I don't think you'd expect it to resurge immediately because. We've kind of gotten used to it, and people have kind of gotten used to living in a certain way, and it won't happen overnight. But I, I do think that um, there is a relationship between the predictability of getting caught and what you're liable to do in terms of being a criminal. I mean, I, I mean look at the amount of black people in, in jail for marijuana versus the amount of white people in jail for marijuana. Well, we, I and, said and, that, it's horrible. And how, many, how, how much money does marijuana make a year, about, you think? Who make? The marijuana, how much? Know. Billions. Billions. You think that all black people? That's all black people? Yes. <laughs> Have you seen the statistics? <laughs> no, well, I don't. Maybe I, I, if Cuomo I, I, lets us legalize it, yes. it'll you know. Yeah, it'll yeah be nothing about legalizing. I'm more for. I'm not. I, by the way, just so you know, I know what it look like. But I don't do. I don't do any drugs. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Nothing. But he doesn't I even do, have sex. He's celibate. I. I <laughs> but I do believe marijuana. Is way better for you than alcohol. It, it is. is. It of has way it more healing af things than alcohol, if anything. So it's like, well, we're talking about Bloomberg here. I know. I'm, I'm gonna come back to that. <laughs> it's like right. now they want to legalize it, but then what about all the hundreds, of, the millions of people, black men and women they put in jail? They should let them all out. And they should expunge their. They rest. should yes, let. Yes. They should let all yeah. of them out. Well, Sanders right. said that. I was like, you know what? Good for him. I, yeah. I, like, a couple of them said that. Yeah. The other yeah. Night. Did Bloomberg say that? So, yeah. Yeah, he did. Did he on oh, the I, stage? I, 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 I never know. heard him say that. Not so, um, so how did, what did you think about uh, David Dinkins when he was mayor? Were you here then? I was here. Yeah, I was born and raised here. Oh, okay. uh, David Dinkins, I can't. <laughs> he just endorsed Bloomberg, by the way. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Did? Yeah. Dinkins did? Yeah. Dinkins and Let me just say real quick. That was a time when most of us didn't pay attention to politics as, as, as we are now. So Dinkins, I don't remember any good things out of him. I just remember he's a weird-looking dude. <laughs> and, uh, and some of his policies was a little racist towards black people. Dinkins? 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 Oh, no, no. I'm thinking Koch. Shoot, sorry. Oh, we're Koch. talking Dinkins. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Koch. Koch, not Dinkins. I take it back. Koch. Koch is a weird-looking dude. Do we agree? He was. You're okay. right. Uh, Dinkins, I feel like 
any any politician, no matter what the color, gender, um, when you're trying to do right, your hands are your you, your hands are cuffed with the, the old system, and it takes so long to change things. It takes forever. So Dinkins maybe wanted to do the right things, but but I I feel like his hands was he couldn't do much, you know. No, but other mayors and he did. Couldn't, he couldn't. He did pretty well. I mean, he started yeah. a lot of stuff that he started some of the policing, the, the the policing, and the, he cut back on crime. He was he but, did some but, of the but housing. A lot of people didn't like him, though, right? Well, not my people. Well, you know, uh, Giuliani defeated him uh, in, when he ran well, against. What do you think about Giuliani? The second time. Mm. Giuliani. I mean, Giuliani's nuts. No one loves Giuliani. I think he's gone nuts. You love Giuliani? Well, no, I, he he lost I have to mind. be honest. I mean, I'll now. Tell you so, in 1996, I was, a, I was a reporter. He was in May. I, may, I interviewed him. It was uh, the Republican convention was going on in San Diego. And I said, How come you're not there? He goes, ah, No, that kind of thing isn't for me. I'm, I'm more for moderate politicians of either party than extremists on one. I mean, what I'm saying is something has happened. He knew what you wanted to hear. Maybe, but he, look, he was, to be the mayor of New York, even if you're a Republican, on social issues, you had to be a liberal. He Whether was, it was crazy even when he was He was, was a here. little crazy, I but I... he really lost his mind, though? I mean, I thought I think, he was, yes. like, I well into dementia this, this, eye, this eye is wide. I think, I think he's changed. Something I, he, I actually think this has this always been Giuliani, the real Giuliani, is coming out now. He I always been like right. this, and I, he's been disguising maybe. this to be for the thinking he's been for the people. Giuliani always been crazy, batshit crazy. But so also remember, he ran for president. He was kind of a liberal Republican. He got one delegate after spending fifty million dollars. He saw which way the Republican Party was going, and he went that way too. I think oh, yeah. there's a lot of opportunism, and then I think I've talked with people, and you have too, Eleanor. You've talked with people who kind of know him. I don't know. They tell I me, him. right? I mean, we all yeah. interview. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, people who are close to him, they say this is a different guy now. Yeah. There's something wacky. Going I, well, on. yeah. He's, he's so I. Oh I, wait a minute. I mean, he's the guy who came out and announced his divorce to the I press. Yeah. And his wife had to watch it on television. Right. I mean, he's always been nuts. I think. And, and this is the person that Noam loves. Well, you know, I didn't get to comment <laughs> on that. I I don't like him now. I, I think he's a, he's farcical now. You know, and even when he smiles, looks like a jack-o'-lantern. The guy's crazy. But I'm not going to lie and pretend that when he was mayor, I didn't at the time think he was the most important leader I had ever witnessed in my lifetime. There had never been a correlation. We don't still don't know what's causation, what's correlation. But there had never been a correlation in my lifetime between a leader and a change in... Um, in the reality, as there was when Giuliani took over New York City. Giuliani took over when it was chaos, and he left New York City, uh, well, it, prior to 9-11, it was already unbelievably improved. And then during 9-11, he was masterful. No, nobody could take that away that from him. That was his minute. He rose mm. to the occasion. I mean, you've got to give him that. Well, let's, let's, what else, hold on, hold on. Hey, let's during that occasion, what else can you do? No, no. Many people <laughs> would not rise to the occasion. No, he knew every subway route. He knew the direction of the street. I remember no, seeing No, he did him. put the emergency center on the 
what was it, the 27th floor of one of the towers that got blown I, up? I, but, he, didn't you know. want, he, didn't, he was worried about floods. Yes. I, he wasn't I, worried about the right things. I, but, but look, you have to give him... What, what, Maybe we should take a magnifying glass to Abraham Lincoln's uh, conduct of uh, <laughs> mistakes in the Civil War, too. I mean, there's... there's, there's well, You're I mean, right. it's a mistake. He, I, I'm sorry, he, I gotta go, guys. Go um, go okay. It's a captain, boys go and girls. Sorry. He... He... Nice. he um, he left New York much, much better than he found it, and he didn't. In, he he wasn't the one who quadrupled stop and frisks. And whatever he is personally, creep or not, he was a good mayor. I, w- I would not. Pref- I, in retrospect, I would not prefer that Dinkins had won and not Giuliani. That's just you know my take. And he wasn't. And he wasn't very friendly to nightlife, by the way. No. He brought the people coming in with sound meters and whatever. Right. So it wasn't like he he served my interests. But there was. So what did you like about him? Well, there was. But there was. Listen, you have to understand. New York at that time, we thought it was done. We thought New York was done. After nine eleven, you mean? No, no, no. no. Uh, in the eighties. Oh, in the eighties. Late eighties and early nineties. We, we at, at like two in the morning here. We used to call it Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> it was just we it was just crack addicts and needles and every waitress was mugged and. I mean, it, it, it just couldn't... My, my stepmother, Ava, was doing a bank deposit and got her head smashed into the pavement and had a concussion. My father was robbed at gunpoint. I mean, it was... This was, this was the reality yeah. of New York, and nobody thought it was ever going to... They were making movies like Escape from New York, you know, and, and then... Yeah, I know. I and by remember. the time Giuliani left, that was done. Yeah. But, so, I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's problematic, though. I mean, my yeah. father grew up in the East Village, and my grandparents lived there my whole life. So I remember going there and seeing all that shit as a kid. So I am sympathetic to that, and I like that I was able to ride the subway and not get, like, gang raped, you yeah. know? But one could argue that his tactics were questionable. Where did all those people go? Okay, it takes a tender, what is it? It takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. Like, you know. <laughs> all right, you know, whatever. No, but no, but like, actually, where did those I'm people being, go? I'm not just being facetious. There, like, where did he just ship them to, like, there, Florida? Listen, there, there is something. Try Rikers. Jersey, Rikers, yeah. yeah. There is a sliding scale in real life, which is that when you have an urgent situation, which I think New York qualified as an urgent situation, a, 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 a existential threat, basically to New York City, certain uh, actions, strong arm actions, seem more defensible. When Bloomberg took over and things were calm, and then he tripled down to try to squeeze the last bit of, you know, statistical moisture out of that sponge, didn't care, that, that's a totally different uh, calculation to me. But like, no, he, you, you know, Fred said, and, and the, the experts in crime yeah. often say this, nobody knows the real reason nobody why knows. crime went down across the country, except maybe for Chicago and New Orleans. Some and say lead paint. So, I mean, it's incredible people think the lead paint had something to do well, with it. Well, they think the crack, the crack um, uh, epidemic people really... people were born to crack... People... Yeah, there's this notion, what's his name, Freakonomics. Fewer people were born with crack in their brains and didn't grow up to become criminals. I think that's kind of... One thing about the rest of the country, almost every major city police department adopted the CompStat. What CompStat was, keep in mind, before CompStat was computer statistics doing daily summaries of where the crimes were happening in New York. If there was a concentration of crime in this block, you send more cops there. Until then, there were quarterly crime statistics in New York. 
Yeah. How are you going to react to that? This was a guy named Jack Maple, who shortly after he instituted it, died of cancer. But Fred he was, knows everything. Go ahead. Well, I was a New York reporter well, at the time. Yeah, but you have the we, names at your command. And, well, yeah. that's an unusual one. Uh, <laughs> often I don't. I could, I could forget your name on certain nights. But uh, he, he instituted this. Nobody had done it before. And then suddenly... Every police department in the country in a big city did this and, and was having similar effects. I, I think that was a big part of it. Uh, uh, and Baltimore, Camden, Chicago, there are... There, well, oh. yeah, Comstat was really important. Yeah. But I'm just saying there were a lot of things that were happening. Oh, yeah, lots of things going on. And, you know, the crack ep ec epidemic was shutting down. The, sorry. And the again, crack for, for who knows what reasons. epidemic was yeah. shutting down. And... Um, and Police departments were beginning to send people out and do more and more community policing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There were about five different things like that that made a lot of difference. Comstat was really important because it did give uh, police departments uh, a clue when there were the, these clusters of crimes, and they very often were caused by the same two or three people. Yeah. So, so, okay, so I was to say, so, but there are some cities where crime has, like right now, Baltimore has tremendous violent crime. So it's not, yeah. it, it's not as if, so, so obviously there are, there are still scenarios where if you don't do certain things right, you can have a total conflagration of, right. conflagration of crime. Yeah. Now, I used to drive home late at night in those days, and my father used to tell me, just run the red lights. Because if you stopped at a red light, especially around uh, going like on, on the east side, like at one or two o'clock in the morning, yeah, right? or, yeah, or even later, between the squeegee people yeah. and, the, and the people, that, and and my and my, I mean, with strict orders, my father said, you run the red lights, and if a cop pulls you over, you tell them why you ran the red light. If you get a ticket, you get a ticket. And as we were later yeah. learned, the squeegee people were criminals. Oh, absolutely. These were heroin addicts who were robbing people. Wasn't just and, what did you think they were before but, that? No, but my no, point no, is... No, <laughs> the ACLU defended them as... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And Giuliani got rid of them. Yeah. And if there was not a single life saved <laughs> by that, it was still a tremendous change in... It was like 20 people. That's all that he had to do. It was the same yeah, 20 yeah, people. Yeah. You know. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Let's talk about sex. Good sex. Now, you can increase your performance and get that. Let's try it again. Try it again. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. And you can get your first shipment free when you use our promo code SELLER, C-E-L-L-A-R. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from more confidence when it counts... Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed physicians, so you don't have to go to the doctor's office or wait in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, there's no more awkwardness. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code SELLER, C-E-L-L-A-R. Just pay $5 shipping. 
Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code SELLER to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you, Blue Chew, and my wife thanks you. There's not that many times as a citizen you're directly affected by a politician. A lot of it's just in theory, you know, like like Trump is president now. Trump's a disaster. Uh, if I didn't if, if I didn't know he was president, would I actually detect anything different in my life? Could I point to something that's changed since he's president? No, I can't. No, but with Giuliani, but my life was actually in, no. But with Giuliani. Things really began to change for me, significant things in my day-to-day life. Again, maybe it's correlation and not causation. Well, you know, when Bloomberg took over in 2002, the one thing he did say about Giuliani, he he didn't hire many of uh, Giuliani's people. He didn't really agree with them. Uh, But he did say that because Giuliani had calmed the city, no, the crime rate had gone down so drastically that that was one thing he thought he wasn't going to have to do. And it wasn't until much later that he decided that he needed to go after the illegal guns on the street and to go after the NRA. He was one of the, you know, when he went after the NRA in 2005, nobody was doing that. It was considered a political suicide to go after the NRA. But he, he began to focus on the illegal uh, gun trade and and all the illegal guns that were coming from Virginia and North Carolina and Georgia and places like that. And so they had all these campaigns to get these guns off uh, the streets of New York. But uh, Giuliani had made that possible in a way because he had dealt with with the, the overall problem and brought the crime rate down so dramatically. Yeah. Isn't, this, isn't this the way it is? And then we got, I guess we got to wrap it up. Well, I, I've, I've made this, uh, okay, this analogy before that um, kind of like you, you, you look through a microscope at, you know, no magnification. You first take over a horrible New York City and you see all these terrible things. Like you, to, you can see them with the naked eye and you, you clean them all up and now everything's clean. And then you double the magnification of the microphone. Oh, my God, look look at that. They're all back, whatever it is. And and before you know it, you've doubled it to 128 times magnification. But what it still looks just as big and ugly as it ever did. And you forget that you're looking at 120. And this is what happened with these politicians. So, so Giuliani starts off by you know saving 2,500 lives. And now Bloomberg keeps turning the magnification. I mean, he says... They're drinking sweet sodas by the by <laughs> buckets. There's, there's, they, we need we need oh, he, pedestrian you know walkways. You know we need bike lanes. You know what Bloomberg <laughs> says? He says to New Yorkers, he says, just before you die, remember, you got three extra years. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure that because he, impre- he improved the life. That's right. Your your life expectancy went up by Hilarious. three years. Is that because of uh, the murder job? What, what is, oh. are they healthier? I'll tell you what it really was. It was that a lot of young uh, immigrants uh, came in and, and, and skewed the skewed numbers. Skewed the statistics. And so, uh, but, you know, people weren't smoking as much. They weren't, uh, they weren't eating these horrible, fatty, you know. The only person eating the, the trans fat is um, Trump, and he loves it. <laughs> would you vote for Bloomberg? Oh, yeah. You would? I would. I, uh, you know, the thing I mean, is... You don't have to say if you don't I want would, to. I would, no, I would vote for any Democrat against... You would vote for Sanders. I wouldn't be happy about it, but yeah. 
I don't think I would. Well, so the, the you would you vote for Trump over Sanders? Or is your uh, cop-out that you live in New York and it wouldn't matter? I, no, that I, is I, his cop-out. No, no, I, I would not say it I don't vote. Which but, is criminal. You don't vote, period? I, not for, I haven't voted for president in a long insane. time. Because, oh, Jesus Christ, no. Why are you I even know. talking I, about any of this? I but know. I, it's but, insane. Well, because, you have no right to talk no, about because, anything. Because of what you, you're right, because I don't want to get called for jury duty and, and my vote doesn't count. But but, but, but I'm not using that as a cop-out because I will, I will why still— Why don't you want to get called for jury duty? I will still use the um, word vote figuratively as, as supporting a candidate. I would, you know, years ago, I, would I wouldn't that, even I interview think, I anybody. I, I can't imagine President Sanders. Did you hear what Eleanor said? No. I, I spent. I was a political reporter for years and years, and I wouldn't even interview people when they didn't vote. I'd just say, "Oh, you didn't vote," and I'd go interview somebody else. It's my uh, right as an American not to it's, vote. It's she criminal. Might have, she might have dissed you at some point. Though. Yeah, it's, I it's think criminal. I, you look well, a little especially familiar. Especially with, so, with somebody who has <laughs> such strong okay. political Presuming opinions. that I did vote uh, normally, I don't think if it's Trump Sanders, I don't think I would vote, even if I had voted for the last twenty elections in a row or whatever I've been alive for. Then, then you're, but voting. you're voting. You're for, voting. You, you are voting. You're voting for Trump. That's right. Not in New York. It does Sanders is no, going to win New York. York. The New York cop out. If yeah. everybody no. said that, okay, I'm not going to get into but this. But everybody doesn't say. It. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> that's not true, actually. Yeah, a lot right. of people say it, and it's incredibly okay. there problematic. There were people in 2016 who said, the polls show Hillary way ahead. This is a perfect time to vote for a third-party candidate. Yes. I always yes. vote. That's, okay. Like I just want to say, rather than talk about citizen. me voting or not, all I'm trying to bring out <laughs> is that I find... It, when, the, the, when you measure the, the dangers of Trump and the dangers of Sanders, they're significant. I don't agree, and here's why. Okay. I don't First of all, the future, the future of democracy is different from some shitty economics for a few years. Second, most of what Sanders wants to do has to be passed by Congress. It, will, it will not be through. passed by Congress. The things that Trump is threatening to do, a lot of it's executive order. I judge too, judge appointments. Sanders too. No, no, not true. Well, I don't, a, a socialist. Uh, listen, no, I, Medicare for all, things like this, this has to be passed by Well, you're Congress. assuming that's my, my fear about Sanders. My, my fear about Sanders is more um, uh, uh, about international affairs. I, th I think but we, don't, I think we, we have, have no idea what he's going to do. No, we don't. But and you don't know what Trump is going to do either. Listen, no. I have a, a brother-in-law who voted for Bush instead of Kerry because he said Kerry would never bomb Iran. Oh. Well, neither did Bush. Turns out. But that's what I'm saying. I, I think that there's risks. There, there are significant risks from either candidate. Well, then go with what you can actually see and measure and detect you know and observe. If, it, what, you, what, what you need to realize is that as much as you worry about Sanders, he is not going to put some of these Cro-Magnons on the Supreme Court. And that, if you don't... I don't, I don't find these people to be Cro-Magnons. Oh boy, you haven't looked at the Kavanaugh. Rolling. He was he was this it was a hair different in his decisions from Gorsuch. Well, oh, Gar okay. from Garland. From Garland. From Garland. Not from Garland. Yes, from Garland. You can look it up. I mean, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a mainstream moderate. But there's the uh, there's the fed, there's the district courts and things like that. As look, well. the, the, I, you might be right about. It. I mean, they, they 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 told me that Justice Roberts was going to be so horrible and a chrome magnet, and he voted to uphold Obamacare. You know, I I don't I, I think. Well, he sees himself now as a balancer. It's a whole different thing. Okay, we have, two, they, they, we have, we have two very important things to discuss. Would you agree that, that and this is, always worries me. <laughs> I mean, if, if you, they always oversell on both sides. It's not, this, I mean, this is not a left-right thing. The opposition always oversells. So that, like, if you look back at the things they said about Romney wanting to put people back in chains and all this stuff, 
there, there's so much hyperbole when they start opposing somebody that we really usually yeah, but the thing get about a distorted Trump, opinion. The thing about Trump, it's, it's, about all out there, it's all out there in the open. You can see it. You don't you have to say, what, what is he really going to do? He's telling you. Do you think he's riskier for the next four years because he's lame duck? Yes. Or do you feel like the last four years well, have shown us that he wasn't let, as risky? Well, let, lame duck, let's let's change the perspective on that. He's unaccountable. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So you think the next four years are riskier? Yes. Be, but would you agree that the, the, the most of the risks that people claim for the first four years didn't pan out? Oh, no, quite a lot of them did. Well, yeah. the end of democracy was was it's uh, happening. Andrew Sullivan. No, it's not. It's happening. it is happening. How is it happening? I mean, look at everything he's doing. He's completely unhinged. If it weren't for the if it weren't for the press and, <laughs> Fair and if it weren't for the how do I answer that? <laughs> okay, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave I'll you leave just, with the final word. I mean, <laughs> I worry that he's going to go after the press as a business because that's what his friend Erdogan did in Turkey. I worry that you know if you look at what he's done at the Justice Department. They are they are turning that into a political um, army to go after any of the people that Trump no, doesn't like. No, lawyer. Lie. This intimidation of jurors by oh. name. No, that's terrible. Putting no, them no, under no. the gun. You know, I mean. Wait, so you're talking about this juror who was his yeah. aunt. Yeah. Like uh, I said, totally uh, unhinged. Well, no, no actually, you're right. That Fred, person's Fred, in I, danger. That person's in danger now. Yeah, that, that's, listen, I don't, I don't, don't be in the position of and having to. And also, you don't want to be on a jury anyway. You'd have good reason, a better reason for not wanting to be on a jury. With, Do with not this. put me in the position of having to defend him, especially defend him for his over-the-top, vulgar, disgusting behavior. Because I always felt that way about him, you know, 10 years before he ran for president. I was always clear. Yeah, it's all me. out there. It's all out there. But, but. The, um, but if you don't vote for the Democrat, you really are supporting him. But the most refined, um, amiable president that we can be very proud of, like Barack Obama, can pull out of Syria and 500,000 people can die. And um, well, what I'm saying is that— There's not necessarily a link to that, but, but I, anyway. I think you think that. You agree. There's, there's some link. Most people— the people around Obama think you the know, danger Panetta might have been drawing the red line to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people, even people who were with him, who said probably should have done something. Yeah. So, but my my point being that I, I'm trying to analyze what will happen in the world with a Trump presidency, as opposed to what might happen with Sanders, and I'm quite worried about the the we've never had a like a pass a, a president who was taken as a pacifist. I before. don't think he's a pacifist. What, what, how do you feel about Biden in case he pulls it out? I like Biden. I mean, I, I trust. I, mean, I think he's a little feeble, but I, but I, I trust him to be a steady hand, right? I, yeah, he's a moderate, you know. But the, I mean, I think the, the weird thing is we talk about this. The, the if you were to plot everybody ideologically, um, and then zoom out from it, Biden, Hillary, and Trump actually are much closer together as dots on a spectrum than Sanders. Well, only if you're talking about economic policy, maybe. Can I ask you economic guys a policy? real well, question? Trump is to the left on foreign, on a lot hey, of foreign policy. A real question. I don't know what yeah, that means. Well, he, 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 he was against the foreign wars, you know, as opposed to Hillary. Hillary uh, probably more put of a more people in Afghanistan and in, in Syria for More than, Syria, than Hillary would have? They're pretty close. I don't know. They're probably pretty similar is what I'm saying. Both of them, they're closer together than either of them would be to Sanders. That's my point. Go ahead, go ahead. Is it a huge failure on the part of the Democrats that they could not pull it together to find somebody who seems like he can really 
get his shit or her shit together and beat Donald Trump. Well, yes, I is. think I think initially Biden was seen as the guy, and then in the first couple of debates, it was like, oh my God, he's really feeble. Yeah. And then Bloomberg, who had two, I think I'm right about this, Eleanor. You can correct me. He was going to run if Biden didn't run. And then when Biden ran, he goes, well, I guess I don't need to. And then when Biden looked like he was going down, he said, well, I better step in. And then Biden starts getting better. But, it's, but no, it is kind of pathetic that, um, that, well, I would say this. Let's say you were a politician. No, you're in the city council or the U.S. Senate or whatever. Who, you're, who would want to be, what person in his right mind would want to be president? I would want to be your hair is going to go gray. You're, you're, it's going to be no fun at all. You're just going to catch shit every minute of your life. Fred, what are you talking about? Every single city council person <laughs> wants oh, to be president. All right, let me you change that to a senator, Mo, no, senator Mo or congressman. Udall. Remember Mo Udall? Mo Udall. But that was in 1976. Used, that's right, but he defined it. He said there is a disease that affects all politicians, it's called presidentialitis. And you can't get away you think from that's still in a, You think that's still oh, a yeah, contagion? I, mean, I do, I absolutely <laughs> do. You know why, I, I mean, you look at that field the other night, and at least three, maybe four of them should drop out. Oh, they, they might after California, it might be too late then. But, but so why, why didn't a smarter, better Democrat emerge in this, in this election Beats year? Me. That I is, know. I mean, it is just inexplicable. Or, let me ask you, who would it have been? Who do you wish would have run? Well, I like this guy out in Montana. Okay, but what if he had the same? If everybody liked Michael Bennett too, complete washout. Why? No, I don't know. You have to why be dramatic. Why, why What happened to Cory Booker? How come nobody likes him? I liked him. Uh, he just he just couldn't get the money, and he couldn't get the traction. I heard the people who heard his whole half-hour spiel that you listened to that. You said, "Yeah, he's good," but he couldn't find a way to compress it down to. To two minutes. Uh, I think there's way more energy on and numbers on the far woke left than people realize and, and gave credit for. That doesn't explain Biden, Buttigieg, uh, no, Kubitschar, Klobuchar. You add those three people together, they're beating Sanders and No, but maybe Oprah think of that as so this guy win. from Montana. Oprah could probably win. The, the guy from Montana was like a moderate governor, right? Yeah. yeah. So in, in a in a different era, he might have yes. he might have well, been Michael, Michael Bennett Michael could yeah. have been too. Um, yeah. But now I don't think there is energy like uh, a potential energy around that type of the best the best moderate candidate that might reverberate with the three of us. I don't think is capable of exciting voters right well, now. Part of the That's problem is, you know, there used not to be very many primaries. Uh, they've now. I don't like the idea of open primaries. I mean, they're going to be Republicans voting for for Sanders in yeah. South Carolina. There's a movement. There's Mischief a makers. hashtag. Rush yes. uh, Limbaugh always tries to get yeah, people to do things yeah. like that. They're all doing that right now. And it's there's terrible. no winner-take-all states, and super delegates aren't going to have any role on the first ballot. Uh. So yeah, the the party structure is such that the party there is no parties. Somebody said, "Oh, the Democratic elders would never allow this to happen." Well, what <laughs> what Democratic elders are you talking about? What Republican party are you talking about? So when money becomes the big thing and it's not funneled through the parties and you don't even have closed primaries, uh, people with a lot of money and a lot of uh, charisma and populist appeal start winning primaries and then 
you have to kind of go in that direction, at least rhetorically or dramatically, to do it. And so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, kind of a, uh, a soft-spoken, mild, smart person. I don't, I don't think, I don't think. Well, Jimmy Carter was kind of an unusual guy to begin with. But that but was right after Nixon, too. Yeah, Nixon. right after Nixon. I would, I would never tell a lie. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. This oh, was, that this really was, worked. This was Bloomberg's <laughs> big mistake. Like, when Bloomberg was commenting on the Democratic field, he was making fun of Beto O'Rourke for apologizing, apologizing for being born. It's like, <laughs> this is brilliant. And then when he actually is running, he loses his nerve to actually speak that way. And he should have learned a lesson from Trump. That don't listen to what they tell you you can't say. The voters don't care. They want to hear you say I think with O'Rourke, he was uncovered to be an empty suit. No, but I say Bloomberg was just like, oh, was, was hitting hard at that yeah. time. Yeah. As soon as he got on the debate stage, he's, he's not hitting hard. And we need him to go full. He needs to go full sister soldier. He needs to take down the woke with everything he's got. He needs to say, yeah, I made a dirty joke. If one of you haven't made a dirty well, joke, then don't he, vote for me. He did say that. He, he, did, did, say, he didn't say the second sentence, which yeah. is what Noam wants him to say. Yeah. No, well. he, he didn't say it with... It's like, yeah, so what? Yeah, if, if, like if you spoke to him, if he wasn't running, he'd say, yeah, I made a dirty joke. It was the 90s. You know, I mean, what do you want from me? That, that, what does that have to do with me running for president? But now he's like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Why did that. he do so badly in the first debate? I don't know. Was it because he, he hadn't had, been rehearsed? Uh, no, I think, I think he'd gotten a lot of different instructions. And I think one of the things they told him was not to go after any of the women. And then uh, when Elizabeth Warren went after him, tooth was, and he nail, was yeah. he really right. couldn't go back at her. And, you know, what they should have done in that first debate, and they didn't do enough in the second debate, was to go after Sanders. Sanders, the weak link, and they, it took them forever to do that. That was a terrible debate. Terrible. Shocking, right? Who, somebody should be fired at CBS. The worst oh, the, questions. Well, yesterday, yeah. The worst questions. No moderation at all. Well, you know, you know what? I nuts. think they need to have plugs or, you know, a, a, a way to turn off the microphones. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. if somebody goes on, you know, and they're, they've go, gone after a minute and 15 that. seconds. Look, Eleanor, you know this. Gone. These things used to be run by the League of Women Voters who picked the moderators set the rules, not the parties, they did it, and to the extent there was an audience at all, maybe if they'd be able to invite a few people, they instructed them. You know, the moderator would say, you will keep completely silent, you will be kicked out of here if you make any noise, you know, yeah. now here come the candidates for the, you can applaud now, but it, they were dead silent. There was no throwing meat to the masses kind of shit. It was, uh, and they were, you know, they were reasonably okay debates. They were uh, debates for Jim one Lehrer. thing. When they the asked, yeah, Jim that. when yeah. they asked, what's your motto? What's your motto? motto. Do you think oh, yeah. that this is racist? What do you not like about Bernie Sanders' socialism? Why, is, why does somebody have to have a motto? I don't have a like, motto. Like tr Trump has a motto, make America yeah, great again. Yeah, like, what, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was such a stupid the whole question. Thing was stupid. Motto. It's all, but it's, it, these questions are designed to, to raise hell. It's like, what do you think is so terrible about your opponent's policies? What's the worst thing about Sanders in your mind? But I would like to hear if they're going to ask an open-ended question. And by the way, what's the biggest misconception about you? I said, okay, it was, at least it was a chance to humanize him in some way. A lot of them fell flat. But I would like to hear, especially among these kind of very left-wing people, like, what do you feel about America? Like, how do you feel about your country? Because there's a suspicion of like, like, that the further left you go, the more they're holding their nose about the country entirely, you know. Yeah, and Sanders no, no, certainly no, no. Could, is they, charmed by everybody. Start, whoever. Well, you know what? I mean, start Bernie would, have just, Bernie would have just said, 
I love America, but I've got to change this, 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 you know. And, and he'd link that back to our true traditions. And so I, I just don't Maybe. like questions that, that are designed to arouse cliché or just good for ratings. I'm not fights. sure debates really tell you that much they about They don't. Candidates. Even if you're a good debater, so what? I you just, know, uh, they don't tell you And anything. I wouldn't be surprised. If Trump decides he's not going to, he's not going to. Yeah, everybody's. Well, I'd be surprised. I am looking forward to getting on the debate stage with Donald Trump. I will whip him. Well, what if Trump just says I'm too busy? Yeah, yeah. You know, if he, if there's no re constitutional requirement that you have to to do a debate. I'm too busy. I got this crisis. I got that crisis. He's I got my golf game. I'll give odds that that will not happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean his ego <laughs> is way Or maybe way just too one big. debate, and he maybe bans, and or you know, he has said. Well, they have the debate, and uh, the rules are unfair. Oh. I'm not going to go. He, could just say, well, he said that wasn't. He, I, but he, he said everything he says down. is sort of leverage and bluffing and, and attention. He does and, a lot of And trolling. He does a lot of yeah. All right. This has been a, a pleasure. <laughs> and uh, No, really. And uh, I, I, I really hope. So let's get the titles of both books correctly. Go out and buy the following two where is it here? The following two books. Fred Kaplan's book is called The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. And Eleanor Randolph's book is The Many Lives of Michael Bloomberg, which must be selling. Uh, it, it, it's not a new book, right? Is it a couple years old? No, it came out in book. September. Oh, it came out in September. So, yeah. so you, you must. Yeah. Were you kicking your heels when he decided to run for office? Yes, I did. Somebody called and said, go out and buy a lottery ticket. Oh, my God. <laughs> that it was really good for the book. I'm so happy for you. You know, when the, well, I knew a little bit somehow those guys who did that documentary about Koch. Oh, and yeah. then right when it came out, Koch dropped dead. Right. And they were trying to, you know, pretend that they were really sorry about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, at least he didn't die. But I'm, I'm so happy for you that uh, it, it breathed life into book sales, as it must have. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank good night. Thank you. Thank you. A podcast at ComedySolo.com. Oh, yeah, and at um, Live from the Table.